before we get into talking about the book of Revelation, um, of course, I always like to remind people that if we know about Jesus, but we don't really know Jesus, it doesn't really matter what we're doing here. Amen? If we're talking about Jesus, but we don't talk to Jesus, then we've really lost our focus. Amen? So why don't we start with a brief prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word in sacred scripture. We ask you to open up our hearts so that we can be like those two disciples on the road to, the, uh, on the road to Emmaus, who were with Christ as he opened up the scriptures and explained how all the things written in the prophets were about him. We read that their hearts burned as he spoke to them. We ask you, Lord, Lord to give us a similar kind of spiritual heartburn, uh, not because we ate some bad food tonight, but uh, we ask you to give us a spiritual heartburn, uh, that burning in our hearts for you. We ask you, Lord, to co- help us come to a deeper love for the Mass through the study of the book of Revelation in particular here tonight. We ask you to bless all of our family, all of our friends, wherever they may be, And we say the words Jesus left us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Apocalypse. The Book of Revelation. Just the name is enough to send shivers down the spine. When people hear the word Revelation, Apocalypse, when they hear these terms, what do they often think of? Destruction. Plagues. Catastrophic annihilation. When people hear the word Apocalypse, they often tremble in fear. Actually... The word apocalypse comes from a Greek term. Apocalypsis is the Greek term. And the word actually means unveiling or to reveal. The idea is the book of Revelation is revealing something to us. It's making something known that was hidden. Now, when people read the book of Revelation, they often, or when they think about the book of Revelation, a lot of images come to people's minds. What are some of the images that are frequently associated with the apocalypse? Anybody? Yeah. A burning lake of fire. Yeah. Think about that if you're cold, by the way. It'll help warm you up. No, I'm just kidding. What else? Yeah. The four horsemen. All right. Yep. Nuclear bombs. Okay. Yeah. What else? The seven seals. And not the art, art. Not that kind of seal. Right. But a book that has seals on it that can't be opened. All right. Yeah. Seven trumpets. Yeah. The dragon with the seven heads. Yeah. The, the, the woman of Revelation 12. Okay. Very good. Skeletons. Yes. Okay. I'm trying to think of where that would be in the book, but okay. Yes. The mark of the beast. And what is the mark of the beast? Anybody know? Six, six, six. 
Now, a lot of people, when they read the book of Revelation, they think that the way you're going to be able to make sense out of this book is by keeping one eye on the sacred page and the other eye on the headlines. All right? Everybody, you've heard these sensationalistic approaches to the book of Revelation. Jesus is coming soon. The mark of the beast has arrived. And who is the beast? It's Oprah Winfrey. It's Michael Jackson. It's, uh, I don't know, Saddam Hussein or, you know, Vladimir Putin or Ronald Reagan. Actually, that was a big, that was a very popular option in the 1980s. Ronald Wilson Reagan. Three names, six letters each. Six, six, six. I kid you not. There was a very popular book written in 1988. Uh, It said, yeah, you know, we know what the book of Revelation is really all about. We can tell, you know, it's being fulfilled in our day. The book of Revelation describes a red dragon. China, obviously, right? It's about symbol of China. I mean, there are many people who have tried to explain the book of Revelation in light of current events. Famous book came out in 1988, was one of the best-selling books of all time. 88 Reasons Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. The same author wrote another book the next year, 89 Reasons Jesus Will Come Back, 1989. I'm not kidding. That's true. The first one was a bestseller. The next one didn't do so well. I forgot to carry the one. Didn't play well. Anyway, how are we supposed to make sense out of this book? How are we, how are we supposed to make heads or tails out of its images or its beasts? Right? What is the book of Revelation really all about? Well, there has never been a time since Jesus came, that there weren't Christians saying, this is it, this is the time, right now, we're living in that time. Every single time, you look back over 2,000 years, there have always been Christians saying, yep, this is it, right now, this is what the book of Revelation is all about. In the Middle Ages, there was a plague. You probably heard of the Black Plague, yeah? And a third of the population of Europe was killed. The Black Death. You know, a lot of people thought that they were living in the time of the book of Revelation, because believe it or not, the book of Revelation describes a plague that wipes out one-third of the whole population. So there have always been people saying, I know when the book of Revelation is going to be fulfilled, and it's happening right now. And it's happening in the Middle East, and it's happening with such and such a figure. Now, why have people always read the book this way? Well, in part, it's due to the fact that Jesus' coming is the major theme of the book. Revelation 1.1. I've given you a handout. Now, unfortunately, the copy machine ate up and spat out my, my original handout, so you've got half of what I originally wanted to give you. But that's all right. We can just work with this. It's fine. Revelation 1.1 it tells us that the book of Revelation will show us what must soon take place. Revelation 1.3, Jesus says, The time is near. Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming soon. And so people in every generation have thought, Okay, I know when Jesus is coming. He's coming in my own day. And people read the book of Revelation and they focus in on images and they try to make one image like the, the key to unlock the whole book. Like, for example, many of the images you've mentioned come to mind. When people think of the book of Revelation, they think about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They think of the mark of the beast. They think of the beast. They think of the battle of Armageddon. 
All right? They think about uh, things like maybe the rapture or the Antichrist. They think about the, um, oh, the lake of fire somebody mentioned. All these things are in the book of Revelation. Well, actually, they're not. The rapture is never in the book of Revelation. The word Antichrist never occurs in the apocalypse. Isn't that interesting? A lot of the images that people think are like the major... Oh, one of these is mine, I think. Okay. Uh, what, what, what a, a lot of the images that people typically associate with the book of Revelation actually either never appear, like rapture, never is in the book of Revelation. So scholars who really look at the, at the Bible will tell you, oh yeah, that, that word never actually occurs. Antichrist, it's not in the book of Revelation. Never shows up once. And in a lot of these images that most people immediately think of when they think of the book of Revelation, like, for example, the mark of the beast, that only occurs one time in Revelation 13. It's mentioned, and then that's it. It's never mentioned again. The battle of Armageddon, it actually occurs only one time at the end of the book. It's only mentioned once and in passing. Hardly a major theme of the apocalypse. What about other images? The four horsemen. Only mentioned in Revelation 6. That's it. They make a cameo, and then they're gone. The lake of fire, only mentioned once at the end. I think it's mentioned once at the beginning and once at the end. But it's hardly like what the book is really all about. The dragon, well, it's mentioned a couple of times, but he only makes his first appearance in Revelation 13. So there are a lot of images. What's that now? Revelation 5. What about Revelation 5? The lamb? That's not Revelation 5. Yeah, in Revelation 5, we have the lamb, all right, um, but not a dragon. All right, so in the book of Revelation, we have a lot of, um, I, I mean, if I'm, if I'm mistaken, I'd like to be shown, but I don't think it's in Revelation 5. Um, okay, so a lot of the images that you find in the book of Revelation, that, I mean, a lot of the things that people think are, the main theme of the book of Revelation actually aren't in the book of Revelation at all or only appear a couple of times. So what is the book of Revelation really all about? Well, one time I was at a conference, a scholarly conference, and I got a phone call from the New York area code. I immediately recognized New York area code. I'm like, Who's this calling me? From Manhattan. I don't know anybody. And it was Fox News. A producer for Fox News was on the line. They wanted to tell me that a, uh, a war apparently was breaking out in the Middle East and a lot of people were really concerned that the book of Revelation was being realized, being fulfilled. And so they said, now are you Michael Barber? I said, yes I am. They said, you're, the, you're a scholar? Yeah. You've written a book on the book of Revelation? Yeah. Okay, so you know, we want to have a scholar come on and explain you know, what the book of Revelation is really about because a lot of people think it's happening right now. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's not what the book of Revelation is really about. And they said, yeah, okay, well, you know, what would you say real briefly? I said, well, I know exactly when Jesus is coming back. I can tell you exactly on the air if you're interested. <laughs> what? I said, well, I know exactly when Jesus is coming back. It says right there in the book of Revelation when Jesus is coming back. Oh, really? Okay, they, they didn't care anymore about who I was. They'd be like, great, we got a crackpot guy. We're getting him on the air. He's going to look crazy. This is going to be great for ratings. So they sent a limo to come pick me up, and it was, you know, like, you know, it was like the, you know, the, the, the calf being fatted for the slaughter, you know. They took me to the studio, they put me in front of the camera, Michael Barber, he's a scholar, he's written this book, blah, 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 blah. 
And he, he knows a lot about the book of Revelation. Uh, Dr. Briber, now, uh, a lot of people think the book of Revelation is being fulfilled in our own day. Uh, but you say you know exactly when Jesus is coming. Yeah, well, actually, yeah, I, I can tell you exactly when Jesus is coming. Well, when's that going to happen? Well, well, let's just look in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, Jesus says this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Isn't that interesting? Jesus' coming is linked to a meal. I will come. Now, Billy Graham, anybody know who Billy Graham is, famous preacher? He would always use this verse in all of his like revival meetings. But he would always leave a part out. He would always do this. He'd say, he'd read the verse, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And he would leave out the last part of the verse every time. And I will eat with him. Now let's just think about this for a second. Book of Revelation being written to early Christian community. Do you think the early Christians might have had any meal that they associated with Jesus' coming? The Eucharist. In fact, we know that the early Christians saw their Eucharistic meals as uh, the place of Christ's coming from Paul's letter to the, first, to, to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Every time the early Christians celebrated the Eucharist, when they ate the bread and drank the cup, Paul goes on to say they proclaim the coming of Jesus. And if you didn't receive the Eucharist worthily, what was it like you were doing? Being judged. Judgment day wasn't just for the early Christians something that happened at the end of time. When you celebrated the Eucharist, when you celebrated the Eucharist for the early Christians, you were there at Jesus' coming. So, I was on Fox News, so they said, so, so uh, yes, uh, when exactly is Jesus coming? I said, well, in Revelation 3, 20, Jesus says, his coming will take place in a meal. And scholars, many scholars, recognize that that's about the Eucharist. So I know exactly when Jesus is coming the next time we celebrate the Eucharist. Amen? Amen? At every Eucharist, Jesus is coming. And that is one of the major themes and one of the major lessons in the apocalypse. Don't get me wrong. Jesus is coming back at the end of time. There's no doubt about that. And the book of Revelation does describe that at the end of the book. But Jesus' coming isn't simply something that's going to happen in the distant future for the Bible. In the Bible itself, Jesus' coming is linked to the Eucharist, to the celebration of the Eucharist. 
In fact, you don't have to be a Catholic to see this. This is a, from a non-Catholic. A non-Catholic scholar named David Chilton wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. And when he got to this verse in Revelation chapter 3, he was clearly astonished because I mean, most Protestants don't usually think of the Eucharist in terms of Jesus' coming, at least in the way Catholics do. David Chilton writes this, We must take seriously the biblical doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist. We must return to the biblical pattern of worship centered on Jesus Christ, which means the weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper, as well as instruction about its true meaning. In Holy Communion, we are genuinely having dinner with Jesus, lifted up into his heavenly presence, and moreover, we are feasting on him. That's not a Catholic writing that. That's a non-Catholic scholar who got that just from reading the book of Revelation. Right? When is Jesus coming? Well, the book says he's coming soon. We know why he's coming soon. He's coming as soon as the next time we celebrate the Eucharist. In fact, the book of Revelation sprinkles all sorts of other allusions to the Eucharist throughout. For example, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says, To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Hidden manna. Now, Revelation is attributed to John. To John. Some debate among scholars about whether this is the Apostle John or whether it's a different John. But suffice it to say, scholars recognize that the John of the Apocalypse is in somehow related to the John that's in the Gospel of John. So why scholars typically link Revelation to what's known as Johannine literature, John's, John's literature. And in the book of in the Gospel of John, of course, Jesus describes the manna. In Revelation, Jesus says he's going to give us the true manna. What is the true manna? Jesus describes himself as the true manna. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. What is the manna? Does anybody know what the manna was? The Israelites are walking in the wilderness, and they get hungry. And so... And so God rains bread from heaven. Okay, And it's weird because it, it, it comes down like dew. And in fact, when the, or when, the, uh, Israelites, sure, when the Israelites go out and they go to collect up this, this food that's on the ground, they pick it up and they don't know what the heck it is. They pick it up and they say, manna. Manna means what is it? <laughs> Ever heard of a whatchamacallit bar? Right? That's what the manna was. They, it, manna basically means what is it? So, hey, would you like some what is it? I don't know. What is it? What is it? What is it? Right? That's what they call the bread from heaven because they've never seen anything like it before. Psalm 78 describes the manna as the bread of the angels. It's where we get the term panis angelicus, bread of angels. That's the manna in the Old Testament, the bread that came down from heaven. Well, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says he's going to give us the true manna. And he says that he is the true manna. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
and the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then Jesus says this, For my flesh is food indeed. The Greek word there, indeed, aletes, it means true. uh, One translation renders this, My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says that we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. His body is the true manna. The early Christians understood this. You see that in the Gospel of John. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus says, I'm going to give some the manna, the hidden manna, what is he talking about? He's talking about the Eucharist. The real bread that comes down from heaven. Everybody with me here? Okay, so in the early church, the early Christians would get together on one day of the week to celebrate the Eucharist. There was one day in particular that was especially associated with the Eucharist. What day of the week do you think that was? Sunday, exactly. And the early Christians described Sunday as, anybody know what they called it? The Lord's Day. The Lord's Day, right? Because it was the day the Lord rose from the dead. Well, interestingly enough, in the book of Revelation, we know when John received all the visions that he describes. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Notice, all the visions in the book of Revelation were given to John on which day of the week? On Sunday. Where was John when he was writing the book of Revelation? Does anybody know? Patmos. What's Patmos? An island. What was he doing on Patmos? He was exiled. So John's all by himself in the middle of nowhere out on this island on the Lord's Day. Where should he be on the Lord's Day? Where would he be if he wasn't in exile? Where do you think, what do you think he'd be doing this day? Celebrating the Eucharist, right? So on the day John would have been celebrating the Eucharist, on the Lord's Day, John has a vision. The whole book of Revelation is all about what happens on the Lord's Day, on the day the early church celebrated the Eucharist. And you see that the book itself was meant to be read in the church's liturgy. Look at Revelation 1.3. Revelation 1.3 on the top of your page there. John says, Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and who keep what is written therein, for the time is near. Now, no problem. Uh, Now, so what's going on here? Blessed are those who read the book aloud. What do you think John's talking about here? Should we all get the book of Revelation, start walking down the street and read it real loud? So look at what it says. Blessed is the one who reads, and blessed are those who... The one who leads, we, we, or, I'm sorry, the one who reads, we call the lector. The one who hears, we call the congregation. The book is meant to be read out loud. Where is it being read? In the church's worship. That's where they gathered to read this book. 
So when you read the book of Revelation, you've got to read it in its proper context. The book is meant to be read by Christians who are celebrating the Eucharist. Now, what did the early Christians do on Sunday? Well, they celebrated the Eucharist. And we have the earliest description of the Eucharistic celebration in the writings of a second century figure named Justin. Now, this is going to sound weird and strange to all of you Catholics because the Catholic Church just made up its whole religion sometime in the Middle Ages, right? So what we do as Catholics, you know, really doesn't reflect what the Bible teaches or, you know, what the earliest Christians did. We just kind of concocted all of this stuff in the Middle Ages. So bear with me here as we work through this really strange account, mysterious account of what the early Christians did every time they got together. This is what the earliest Christians did. We read this from Justin Martyr. On the day we call the day of the sun, let's see, what day would that be? That would be um, a Sunday. Right? Okay. It's strange, I know. We live 2,000 years later. We don't know anything about this kind of stuff. Getting together on Sunday. All who dwell in the city or country gather in the same place. And the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as much as time permits. So they get together and they read from like a reading from the book of Isaiah. And then they read writings from the New Testament, from the Apostles, reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. I know you've never been to anything like this before, but this is what the earliest Christians did, right? (laughs) Then all rise together. Oh, I'm sorry. When the reader is finished, he who presides over those gathered admonishes and challenges them to imitate these beautiful things. So he gets up and he gives a little lecture. He gives a little talk. He gives, you know, okay, sure, we can call it that. Then all rise together, and then they offer prayers for ourselves and for all others, wherever they may be. And we pray for you know, our sister you know, Elizabeth, and we pray for Brother Larry, and we pray for the president or the emperor. We pray to the Lord. Oh, yeah. Have you guys been reading this before? Okay. All scholars of antiquity, I see here. Okay. And when the prayers are concluded, we exchange a kiss. It's a, it's a sign of their love, it's a sign of their harmony, a sign of their peace with one another. And then someone brings forward bread and a cup of water and wine mixed together. You know, in our day, we use much more, you know, sophisticated, you know, like elements, <laughs> root beer or something like that. Yes, I called root beer sophisticated. I know I said that. (laughs) He takes them, and then he offers praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And for a considerable time, he gives thanks. And the Greek word there is eucharistain. He gives eucharist. That we have been judged worthy of these gifts. And when he's concluded the prayers and the thanksgiving, all give voice to an acclamation. So he finishes, he might say something like, through him, with him, in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all praise and glory is yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. And everybody says, Amen. Yeah, well, you guys all have read this already, right? Notice this is very, is this really all that foreign to us? Let's keep going here. What did they do next? When he who presides has given thanks and the people have responded, those whom we call, let's say, I don't know what this word is, diacons, deacons, 
give to those present the Eucharisted bread and water and wine that were mixed together, and they take them to those who were absent. This is the second century. Now, John wrote the book of Revelation before this, but already in the early church, it was understood that on the Lord's Day, they get together and they celebrate the Eucharist. And over time, it developed, their celebration developed into this kind of liturgy, this kind of set formula of prayers. Yes? Yeah, he actually was a martyr. Yeah. Yeah, and he had the name afterwards. It wasn't like the poor guy, hey, Justin Martyr. Oh, man. <laughs> Gee, Mom, thanks a lot. His brother, Franklin the Apostate, didn't do so well. Neither did Jerry the Heretic. Anyway, um, Didymus the Damned, he didn't make it out either. All right, no. Okay, so what we see here in the early church is that the early Christians recognized that on Sunday they were meant to celebrate the Eucharist. And what they did is they understood that in the celebration of the Eucharist, the Lord was coming. And so they celebrated very early on a liturgy, right? Kind of gathering of the people of God with a presidant, with a priest, who led the people in prayers and ultimately gave them the Eucharist. It's what we basically have in similar form today. The book of Revelation is meant to help us understand what is happening when we celebrate that said liturgy. And so in the book of Revelation, John is taken up into heaven. Revelation chapter 4, John says, I saw an open door. Do I have this on the handout? Let's see here. My hand I got all messed up. Okay. In Revelation 4, John said, I saw an open door in heaven and a voice saying, come up. Not come on down. No, that's another game show. He, or the devil, which you don't want to hear that voice, right? Okay. Come on up. It's a voice of heaven. Come up to heaven. And so John got to have a vision of heaven. He got to see what heaven looked like. And what did heaven look like? In the book of Revelation, we know what it it looks like. It's a long golden road with an endless supply of harp dealerships. Pick up your harp. Little naked baby angels bouncing off of clouds. They're all over the place. When you walk through the, you know, that golden road, kind of got to push them out of your way, but watch where you put your hand because they're naked. This is not what the book of Revelation describes, no. This is what we see in in art in the Middle Ages. People wanted to describe heaven as a happy place. And you can't look at a baby unless you're kind of, you know, weird. You can't look at a baby laugh and not feel happy yourself, right? So they they describe heaven with little baby angels because you look at the baby angels and you, oh, that's cute, and you smile. And that's what heaven's supposed to elicit, the, the joy, happiness. But in the book of Revelation, that's not what heaven looks like. It's not little baby, naked, naked baby angels bouncing on clouds. What does heaven look like? John is taken up, and he sees this throne room. Let's take a look at this under the heading, Lamb of God. John says, And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on a throne a scroll written within and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, the scroll is an image of the covenant. And the idea that it can't be opened is that no one is worthy to fulfill God's covenant plan in history. And John says, he saw no one in heaven or uh, in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I wept much that no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Weep not, lo, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so then John looks, and he's all excited to see the the lion of the tribe of Judah who conquers. But instead of seeing a lion, instead of seeing Aslan, (coughs) oh wait, sorry, wrong book. Instead of seeing a lion, what does he see? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. How is Jesus the conquering lion? Through his death. For all eternity, what's happening in heaven? Jesus is standing before the Father. Is Jesus actually a lamb? No, the book of Revelation uses poetic imagery, right? When you read a book, you've got to read it the way it was meant to be read. Okay? So, for example, the Song of Solomon. Anybody ever heard of the Song of Solomon before? Yeah, It's a love song that Solomon, in the book, is said to have written for his beloved, And in the Song of Solomon, we have some of the most beautiful poetry in the Bible. For example, uh, Solomon speaks to his beloved, Song of Songs 4. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Does not make your heart go pitter-patter. But then it gets strange. Your eyes are doves. Your hair looks like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth look like a flock of shorn lambs, all of which come up from the washing, and they give birth to twins. That's what your teeth look like. Your cheeks look like halves of a pomegranate, Your neck looks like the Tower of David built for an arsenal whereon hang a thousand bucklers, all of them with shields of warriors. If you ask me, this woman isn't beautiful. She's terrifying. Now, obviously, this is poetry. Solomon is not giving us a literal description of a woman, right? And if you're standing away, I mean, it's not like he knows a woman whose eyeballs are actually birds and they come out of her eye sockets, you know, and her neck is like some big tower and there are like little miniature warriors hanging off of her neck. Some, You know, you read this and you think, was this written by that kid in high school who like st- sat in the back and drew nun- nunchucks, you know? You know that kid in your high school? You're like, that was me. Okay, all right, well. Your face looks like nunchucks, you know. I mean, this doesn't seem like... Guys, if you're, if you're single and you're looking to kind of not be single, use poetry. Not that. that this is not going to help you. Okay? But it's a different culture, and we have to read these things the way that they were meant to be read. The book of Revelation is written in a specific genre called apocalyptic. 
Okay? And it uses poetic language to describe spiritual truths. So when we read the book of Revelation, we read about beasts coming up out of the sea. Does this mean that at the end of time we're finally going to see the rematch between Godzilla and Rodan that we've all been waiting for, especially in light of the recent box office success of Godzilla? Is the book of Revelation really about gigantic monsters coming up at the end of time and fighting each other? Or something? As cool as that would be, right? that is not what the book of Revelation is all about. It's using symbolic language. Jesus is described as the lamb. Why? It's reminding us of the Passover. Remember the Israelites were in Egypt. And they needed to be freed from slavery. How were they killed? Well, an, I mean, how were they killed? How were they saved? Right? That's what I want to say. How were the Israelites saved? By the lamb's blood, right? The angel of death was coming through the land of Egypt. And he was going to kill all the firstborn. If you wanted your child to survive... If you wanted to be saved from death, you had to get a lamb. You had to kill the lamb. You had to sprinkle its blood. And then you went to bed and you fell asleep, right? You had to do three things with the lamb. I like to say you have to three things. Kill, spill, and eat your fill. You had to kill the lamb. You had to sprinkle its blood. And then you had to eat the lamb. What would happen, do you think, if you didn't eat the lamb? You'd have one less dependent to claim on your taxes the next morning to Pharaoh. I'll tell you that. Okay. Little Hezekiah? Okay, right? You know what I mean. Okay. You had to eat the lamb. That's the way the Passover worked. Jesus is described in the book of Revelation as the lamb of God. Why do you think that is? How? He died on the cross so that what would happen to us? We would be covered in his blood and we'd be saved. Well, you're not getting ahead of me. Come on, I'm just going to get there. All right, yeah, you're right. We want to be saved from death. So in the Eucharist, we're saved by Jesus. Let me back up. Jesus dies on the cross. He saves us from death. But you didn't just have to kill the lamb. You had to eat the lamb. Amen? Amen. And so where did they read the book of Revelation? In the Eucharist. Where you celebrated the meal where you ate the lamb. What do we say every Sunday we go to Mass? What does the priest say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are called to the Supper of the Lamb. Where does that come from? Do you know? That comes from the end of the book of Revelation. At the end of the book, the saints rejoice when it is announced that there is a great feast and that the bride of Christ has been invited. And the, at, the, at the end of time, we're looking forward towards the union of Christ and his church. But the union of Christ and his church isn't simply a reality at the end of time. When does Christ come to be with his church? When is he uniting himself to the church? Every time we celebrate the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, this is why at Mass, we refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Where is Jesus called the Lamb of God in the Bible? Well, a couple of times in the Gospel of John. Once by St. Paul. But it's primarily in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a weird book. We have the wicked being judged and they're all afraid of this killer lamb. Well, it's, you know, it's not really a killer lamb. It's the killed lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God. 28 times in 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the Lamb of God. 
The book of Revelation is describing for us how we are saved. We are saved through the Lamb. And it uses all this prophetic language or poetic language, you could say. And I'm not going to go, I don't have time to go chapter by chapter through the whole book. I do have a commentary on the book of Revelation, if you're interested, called Coming Soon. And it goes verse by verse through the whole book of Revelation and kind of explains what's all going on. But let me just give you a brief overview. The first part of the book, Jesus commands John to write seven letters to seven churches, calling them to repent. Then Jesus, we read, we read about it here, he opens a scroll. The Greek word there is biblion. It's the word for Bible. Okay? There's a book that has to be opened and read. And when they open the seventh seal to open up this book, there are seven trumpets, and the seven trumpets are blown. And then after that, we move to the second part of the book, where there are seven cups or chalices or bowls that have to be poured out. And it all climaxes with a wedding supper, a meal of the Lamb. Does this sound familiar to you? Have you ever been anywhere where the first part of the get-together is people repenting, saying, Lord, have mercy? Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And then the second thing you do is there's a book that has to be opened and read. And then it proceeds to chalices being poured out and a supper of the Lamb. The book of Revelation gives us the general outline of the Mass. Where is the book of Revelation being fulfilled? It's not in, you know, just looking at political events of the day. We need to have eyes of faith to recognize that Christ is coming and he's coming as soon as we celebrate the Eucharist. Don't get me wrong, he's coming at the end of time. But when Christ comes at the end of time, he will not possess at the end of time one drop of glory that he doesn't already have right now when he comes to us in the Eucharist. Only then, it's invisible. At the end of time, we'll be able to see what is now invisible. Every time we celebrate the Mass, what happens? We're like John. We're taken up into heaven. Who's your favorite saint? St. Patrick? St. Teresa? St. Stephen? Who's your favorite saint? When you go to Mass, when you go to Mass, guess where you are? You're in heaven. When you go to Mass, Christ is coming. Where the King is, there is the Kingdom. And where the Eucharist is, there is the, there is the king. And so when we celebrate the Eucharist, guess who's all around us? The angels and saints. They surround us. Who's your favorite saint? St. Patrick? He is there when we celebrate the Eucharist. Now, we don't see this with our eyes. Sometimes when you go to Mass, it's not a very heavenly experience. Sometimes the music isn't all that heavenly. You're like, did you guys practice? I don't think so. Right? Sometimes maybe the homily isn't all that heavenly. You're like, is it over yet? Sometimes you go to Mass and there's like a baby just screaming his head off. Sorry, that's probably my kid, right? But, and you don't like, you're not at Mass and you're not hearing, you know, Here I am, Lord. Catholics can't sing. Everybody's trying to make it through, you know. It's pretty tough. You know, like, I'm in heaven now. Yes, I am, right? But you know what? That was no different than the first time Jesus came. In a little town called Bethlehem. When God himself was incarnate 
in a manger. It's not like people walked by and smelled all those animals and all the droppings of the sound smells like God. Smells like God's in there. Yeah, sure. There was no, you know, neon sign in the sky that said God, 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 God. Right? People would have walked yes, there were angels who appeared to shepherds in the field, but that's a small portion of the whole population. Most people on the night Jesus was born had no idea that God had become incarnate among them. Jesus was born on a silent night. And when Jesus died on the cross, it looked like just another Roman execution had taken place. And he was buried in a tomb on another silent night. And when Jesus comes to us in the Eucharist, it's another silent night. Because we know he rose from the dead. Amen? And that he is truly alive and with us every time we celebrate the Mass. That is what the book of Revelation is meant to teach us. The book of Revelation is teaching us that Jesus is coming soon. Do you believe it? If we thought right now that Jesus was coming soon, if we thought that tomorrow was the day of the second coming, that tomorrow was the quote-unquote day of the Lord, as it's described in the prophets. If we thought that this Sunday was the day of the Lord, what would you be doing right now? I suspect many of us would be making a beeline for the confessional. (laughs) If you knew Jesus was coming back this Sunday, how would you act? But we know he is coming this Sunday. So how will we act? How will we act? Every time, uh, every year, I, t- I teach at John Paul the Great Catholic University in San Diego. It's in, actually, we're in Escondido. And uh, we have uh, majors in media and business. People come in and want to be, you know, in film, work in films, uh, work in television, we have a big film school. We also have a big business program. We also have a, a, a biblical theology program, which is my baby. It's a lot of fun. Every year, we have incoming freshmen. And every year when they first come in, first day of class, I do the same thing. I say, I want you all to know that we have uh, some very special connections at J.P. Catholic. Actually, we do. And we got a big actor. We actually have big actors coming in all the time to talk to our students, big actors or directors or producers and come and talk to you from today i tell them actually we have a very special guest Uh, maybe you've seen the movie the passion of the christ the man who played jesus jim caviezel is going to be here at 11 o'clock i always relay this information to them he will be here at 11 o'clock and he wants to talk to you about your career plans because you know it's not just what you know it's who you know And he wants to be here and maybe help set you up with some connections and talk about your goals and give you some ideas, hear some of your ideas, maybe give you some advice. It's going to be at 11 o'clock. How many of you think you could be here? Everybody raise your hand. Wow, Jim Cummings. Oh, this is great. I love this school, you know. I say, oh, that's fantastic. Oh, wait, did I say the man who played Jesus was going to be here at 11 o'clock? I meant Jesus is going to be here at 11 o'clock because we're going to celebrate the Eucharist. I'm sorry, I, I, I got mixed up. How many of you think you can be here for Mass at 11 o'clock? All right. 
Every Sunday, Jesus is coming to us. In fact, every day he comes to us in the Eucharist. I have a good Protestant friend, and he told me once, if I believed what Catholics believed about the Eucharist, I would crawl over broken glass on my hands and knees to get inside the church. He said, but I see a lot of Catholics, they go to Mass, and they're dressed more like they're going to the beach than they're going to the Eucharist. You go up to that communion line, and you know there's that girl in that jogging suit with Bootalicious right there on her behind yeah okay great a lot of times you go to mass and it doesn't feel like you're going to heaven part of the reason for that is we ourselves are scandalous so one of the things i'd like to ask you to talk about is how can we better witness to our belief in the coming of christ in the eucharist what can we do and you can discuss this among yourselves in a minute what can we do to better illustrate our belief and the coming of Christ in the Eucharist. And the second thing I'd like to ask you to talk about is this. If the book of Revelation is teaching us that Jesus is coming at every Mass, how should this change the way we approach going to Mass? What is one thing you, we, me, could do different this Sunday to better illustrate that belief? Thank you.